This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. This week, we're talking to Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna. Mark is not your typical CEO. Mark is committed to practicing mindfulness in his personal life as well as his professional life. Circumstances he experienced in his life sent him on a path to learn the benefits of mindfulness and holistic medicine. As a result, Mark is living an extraordinary life and an entire industry has been changed. One man affecting millions of lives. It has been reported that this CEO, a former hippie, manages by walking around slowly and mindfully. Mr. Bertolini is actively engaged in the national dialogue on the future of healthcare. He promotes measures that increase access, lower costs, and improve the quality of healthcare. Mark is a strong advocate for a consumer centered healthcare system, and we loved talking to him. And we know you will too. We'll circle back at the end of the podcast. So we're so happy to be here. And um, we're grateful to you, Mark, for taking the time to be with us. We know how busy you are. So we want to begin by talking to you about your personal health journey and how you came to mindfulness. Well, where should I start? Um, you know, in, in college, I did transcendental meditation um, as a way to work full time, go to school full time, and party full time. <laughs> and it was my really first introduction to, toward a meditative practice. You know, TM was all the rage in the mid seventies, and and then I sort of dropped it um, and went into the business world and thought it was cool to be able to you know sleep four hours a night. I used to sleep two two-hour stints uh, and work in between and, and maintain a lifestyle that was, quote, unquote, successful. And then my son got sick. And through the realization uh, that it would take my personal investment, that money and connections couldn't do anything about it, it would take my personal time and investment in his cure, he took up Reiki and a few other modalities around meditative practices, alternative practices, while he was in the hospital getting his bone marrow transplant. Could you tell us what, what happened and what sickness or what cancer he, he had? He had T-cell gamma delta lymphoma, was, which was an incurable cancer at the time. And he um, was 16? He was 16. He's the only one to ever survive it, still today. And so we needed to um, get him to remission and then get him to a bone marrow transplant as quickly as possible. That had not never worked before, so we did a mismatched bone marrow transplant, which would create graft-versus-host disease, which is a terrible outcome. But because he had T-cell lymphoma, the feeling was if we can create graft-versus-host disease, graft-versus-host disease attacks the skin, which is where the T-cells live. And if we can kill the T-cells, we have a chance of creating a cure, but then we'd have to figure out how to help them survive graft-versus-host disease. 
So all of that worked like clockwork. Within three weeks of his bone marrow transplant, he had graft-versus-host disease, and that began the journey of fighting graft-versus-host disease mm. in the hospital. And so that's where we used first used Reiki when he was getting the bone marrow transplant, uh, but then used it throughout the time that he was there. Um, he had a little massage, foot massage, things like that. Um, you know, what do they call that? Reflexology. Reflexology, right? Um, that sort of stuff. And and I'd sit there and I was living with him in his room. Right. You so moved I moved in. in, moved into him with his room, and I and I, they'd say to me, "Do you want to try it?" So I tried the Reiki one time, and within five minutes, I'm like, "Either touch me or don't, but don't hover like that." <laughs> and so it didn't work for me. Um, and and so we went through that whole journey, and we got through it. It was you know an intense. Um, he went into hospice during it. Um, we gave up at one point, and then we found another drug for him. And then, how did you find that other drug? We had a Harrison's internal medicine text um, with yellow stickies in it, and we had a laptop with PubMed on it. And we would meet with the medical team every morning. So we would terrorize them. <laughs> and we'd sit there and say, okay, what's going on today? What are the mm -hmm. blood levels? What do we need to think about? What do we do next? What are the main issues? Mm -hmm. And we would keep charts on the wall, nice. and we would do all wow. it was like a project, it was like yeah. a management process. And what happened is at one point, none of it was working, traditional approach. And I said to the doctors, I think he's starving, mm -hmm. which he was because he couldn't use intralipids to replenish his albumin. And I said, because intralipids in the United States were soy-based. And so I said, there's got to be a non-soy, and he's allergic to soy. There, I, there's got to be a non-soy-based intralipid somewhere. One of the residents went out of the room the story that this is an interesting story. So I walk into the, so every day I would meet with them, mm -hmm. and so when we put them in hospice, um, I walked in without my laptop. Or they came in, I didn't have my laptop or my Harrison syndrome. Text, so where's your book? I said, doesn't matter, doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Traditional medicine doesn't work, and they said, well, you know, I, I said he's starving, and we need an intralipid without soy. There's got to be one somewhere. So I was raised. By Jesuits, mm. priests. And so, you know, when Jesuit, the Jesuit sort of practices, you don't make deals with God. You always want to be of right mind. Right. And I carried a rosary in my pocket from, from my first communion. I had a scapular around my neck, cross around my neck. And when I closed up the book and told the doctors, you, this doesn't work, I went down to the chapel at the, at the hospital and I made a deal. I said, me for him, let me have his pain, let me be, let me take his pain, let me take his illness, because I've lived this incredible life, right. and he's just 16, let, let this happen. I come back upstairs, and the resident, Tara Henderson, who's a physician now at Boston Children's, said, I called my nutritional professor at North Carolina, at University of North Carolina, and he knows of an intralipid in Austria that's omega-3 fatty acid-based, yeah. but it's not FDA-approved. Uh. So we reached out to the FDA. The FDA said there's a single patient compassionate use exception. It's three-page form. Have your doctor fill it out. We got approval. The company that made it for Zinnius got it to the United States. I go through the institutional review board at the hospital because it was a risky experiment mm -hmm. and signed away any legal liability so that, that I couldn't sue them. And we gave it to them, and it worked. Mm -hmm. And we had to take him out of hospice because he was getting better. And so he went home on February 18th, 2003, went in the hospital in December of 2002. And you were there every day? 
Which starting in, uh, starting in, when he got really sick after the graft versus host disease yeah. kicked in, yeah. He moved in. So he became in. a real yeah. patient advocate. I mean, yep. that's sort of what you were. That's what that's what I tried to be anyway. Yeah. And um, although I was not quite revered that way by the hospital staff. No, <laughs> no. It's, there was many a difficult uh, conversation with the hospital Maybe a pain in staff. the neck for to the hospital staff. Yeah. Again, it's just too. not what they're used to. Right. And it's, it's tough. I mean, you've got to be in there and you do have to be an advocate. So he came home February 18th, 2003. On February 18th, 2004, I'm skiing. I hit a tree and I break my neck one year to the, one year to the day. Did you have to give your son a kidney? That was in 2007. Okay, after. Okay, so go yeah. ahead. Okay. So, so I broke my neck, neck one year to the day of him coming home. <gasps> and um, there was a guy in Israel putting Eric's picture in the wall, the wailing wall, and praying for him every day. Um, and so I got a call and, you know, how you doing? Well, I broke my neck. Um, oh my you know, God. how's Eric? Great. Did you make a deal? Oh and I said, God. well, didn't think so, but well, send me your picture. And so um, we went through that whole transition. And within three months of my leaving the hospital, so I was in a coma. I woke up and they... But didn't you tell us that when you had the accident, you were in water for like... Mm-hmm. And what happened there? Because that was pretty So I hit the tree. My neck broke. Was unconscious. I flipped around the tree. My skis hung up on the branches. Oh. And I hung upside down on a very steep slope. And the bindings let loose. And I slid head first on my back down into water and ice and, and, and snow and it filled up the back of my jacket from my, <laughs> and just filled it all with ice and snow. Which, the inflammation, right? Yeah, and that's prevented my spinal cord from uh, swelling and, and rupturing <laughs> because I have what is would be considered a quadriplegic injury with right. the number of C2, C3, C5, C6, T1. And, that's amazing. Right. And so then I wake up in the hospital and the doctor says, what do you need to know? And I said, how do I get out of here? And he said, why? And I said, because I'll die here if, you, if I stay here. What do I need to do to get out of here? And so within five days, I was walking with a cane and left and went home um, and started rehab at home. Mm-hmm. And then within like a month or two, the pain came in a very bad way. And I had terrible neuropathy, which I still do today, even this moment from my left ear down to my fingertips. It burns all day long, like when you hit your funny bone really hard. Oh, no, That's what yeah. it feels like all the time. It never stops. Oh. And so um, I was on all sorts of narcotics. I was on seven different narcotics. Mm. Um, luckily for me, I'm not an addictive, I don't have an addictive personality or an addictive metabolism, I guess. I was on seven different narcotics and they didn't help. And so I was living life, you know, like, you know, peanuts when he talked to his mother. Wah, wah. Everything was wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and I said, you know, I got to do something different. And so I got introduced to cranial sacral therapy. I said, so somebody's going to hold on to my head and my sacrum, and I'm going to feel better. How does that work? And um, I went for treatment, and after three treatments, um, I started feeling better. And within three months, I was off all my narcotics. I was always very athletic, um, ran every morning for four miles, worked out every day. You know, I I have these, like, leather books with every workout I ever did from the age of 20 till February 17th, 2004. 
every rep I ever lifted, every meal, you know, all the nutrition I did over the whole routine, I kept track of all of it, all the supplements. And, and so I said, you know, and I was now at this time after I started cranial sacral therapy, I'm like now gone from 185 to 235 pounds. I'm a mess, you know, physically got off the drugs and then the cranial sacral therapist, um, said to me, um, her name's Mari Arno. Um, and Mari said to me, you should try yoga. I said, well, like, yoga's for girls, isn't it? <laughs> and she goes, oh, really? And so she practiced for a couple of weeks. Said, tell you what, four free lessons. And if it doesn't work, you don't have to pay me. Um, and she practiced with one arm for two weeks to put me through my paces. And after the first class, I could barely move the next day. Yeah. I said, this is really powerful stuff. So I started doing yoga every day. Um, it was something I could do. It made me feel better. It helped me, you know, f- exercise. It made me, f- got the endorphins going. And and a few months into it, I said to, I said to Mari, I said, you know, what, what is it about this that is bigger than the practice? And she goes, you know, that's not for me to tell you. You have to find out yourself. You need to go on this journey yourself. So I found this book by Leonard Permalter. Um, and he has or had at the time an ashram up in um, New York, upstate New York. And it was called The Heart and Science of Yoga. And it connected yoga and the real practice of yoga, you know, the eight limbs of yoga, to Western religion. Mm. And sort of brought over the parallels. And Jesuit life. Yeah. And so, you know, the yamas and niyamas of, of Hinduism, the first two limbs of yoga, are the Ten Commandments. Mm. Mm-hmm. The very first one is the golden rule. You know, treat others as you would expect to be treated by them. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, this is really powerful. While I was sitting in Boston with Eric, the whole thing broke loose with the Catholic Church. I wrote a letter to um, the Archbishop of Hartford, um, who was at Falls River before he came to Hartford, and said, you know, I understand we have to find it in our heart to forgive these people who have done these terrible things. Mm-hmm. But how is it that the institutional church moved these men around to put more children in harm's way. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a legal letter back, you know, and so I said, you know, I'm no longer giving money to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Took my rosary out of my pocket, took my scapular from around my neck and the cross around my neck and put it in the closet. And haven't put them on since and haven't been back to Catholic Church or Mass since then. Um, so I was looking for a way to find practice and a connection with some spirituality. So this created a an opportunity for me. And so I started on this journey and I started feeling better and I started getting pieces of my life back. Two years to the day of my accident, I got back on my skis um, with an instructor in Vermont, an adaptive skiing program. And went, you know, we are we went out to the kitty hill <laughs> and he learned. said, you know, take take a take a run. And then he said, you know, you used to race. And I said, Yeah, I did. And he goes, Well, you're better than you're giving yourself credit for. Let's go up. And by the end of the day, I did the run that I got hurt on. Oh, wow. my God. And, oh. um, and you know, wow. went downstairs and went oh down to the, you know, God. to the condo and had a shot of scotch and said, okay, I completed <laughs> the circle. I finished the ride. Yeah. And, wow. um, and so I've gotten back into, you know, got back on my motorcycles, mm-hmm. got back on in playing golf, got back, um, although I don't do much of that anymore, got back into the gym. I, you know, um ride bicycles and in 2014 we rode the Camino de Santiago yeah tell us about that because you told us a little bit about that so tell us about that 
So I always loved to ride bicycles and I couldn't figure out how to ride my bicycle with my damaged left arm. And so there was this bike, there's this bike shop in Canton, Connecticut, Benadorm Bikes. Jan Tanner um, and her husband own it. And Jan is a a gold medalist um, Uh. and was on the U.S. Women's Olympic team. And and, and for biking, cycling, cycling. Yep, her husband was also on the men's. Mm -hmm. And she fits bikes for people. So I go into the bike shop and say, you know what, I got this problem, and blah blah. blah. You know, and I'm thinking I'm going to get on a recumbent bike. And she goes, no, we're going to get you up on a regular bike. And so she hooked me up, put together a program for me of working with uh, independent fabricators up in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. It's a bike shop up in New Hampshire where they make frames. And we designed a frame that would work with my injury with Shimono, who who does the gearing and, and, and brakes and everything for bikes and got me a bike where we had electronic transmission where I could control it with one hand and hydraulic brakes, disc brakes. Um, she got a radar system for the bike so I could see behind me without having to turn my head. And then she built an exoskeleton for my left arm that matched the bike so I could ride it so I could keep my arm extended, my left arm extended. And I started riding again. It was like, oh my God. I mean, it was like the first time I went skiing and the first time I, you know, got, got, you know, got on the bicycle, it was like, I had tears in my eyes. I thought I'd never be able to do this again. Cause I don't know if you cycle at all, but it is yeah, one of yeah. the most freeing. Yeah, yeah. we're big. You spinners. never see anybody on a bicycle who's unhappy. It's true. No. They're smiling. always smiling it's on true. a bicycle. True. Right? Smiling. Yeah. True. Yeah. And so you, you see people who are running who are grimacing all the time, but nobody on a bicycle <laughs> is ever. They all got a <laughs> smile on their face. That's true. So, true. <laughs> so Mari um, has walked the Camino de Santiago twice on her own. Her family's history comes from Galicia. She's um, um, a descendant of the Templar Knights that protected oh. the, the Camino. And so she said, I'm, and she, two years prior to that, she said, my feet are itchy. I'm going for a walk. So, well, let me get my shoes and I'll go with you. She goes, no, actually my backpack's packed out in the garage. I'm going to walk the green mountain trail, the long, the long trail from the Massachusetts border to Canada. And I'm going by myself. (laughs) And so in 23 days, she did the whole green mountain ridgeline. And I met her halfway and walked with her and then picked her up at the end. Um, But. So she said, my feet are itchy. I think I need to do the Camino. I said, I'd like to do the Camino with you. And she goes, okay, well, can you take a month and a half? I said, no, I can do three weeks. She goes, well, let's do it on our bicycles. And so um, we went from um, La Rochelle, France, Mm -hmm. up on the coast, which is sort of due west of Paris. Um, And we went all the way down the coastline of France, which is a bike trail through Louis XIII's forest. Um, wow. And, you know, in France, everybody's on their bicycle. I felt like I needed a baguette wherever I went <laughs> for across my handlebars. And we just rode along going, you know, bonjour. Yeah, but- and the, more, the more you sing song, yeah, it, the more like, sing song yes. you come back, bonjour. <laughs> and everybody had their little dog and their baguette. And, <laughs> That's and, so fun. And then we went over the Pyrenees into Spain and we went all the way across to Santiago, Spain. Oh. So it was 1,280 miles. We did it in 14 riding days. But it was an amazing, oh, I mean, the people, the stories God, you would hear, the it. people you would meet. I um, can imagine. There were people on horseback. Oh. So one of the things we, would, we thought, well, let's do the next one on horseback. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be kind of cool. So cool. God, Mark. You know, when you talk about how you've had to let go of a lot of things, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that idea of like the hero's journey, the yeah. idea that how have you done this? I mean, your life was this way and now yeah. it's this way. And well, how do you reflect on that? And 
And when we think about you, we think about that roomy. Well, yeah, I'm doing a book. Oh. And um, one of the chapters is about lo- on leaders, mindful leadership. Mm. And one of the chapters is about losing attachment. Mm-hmm. So when most people think about mindfulness and meditation, they think about meditation as this black hole you go into, whether you hear nothing, you see nothing, and right. all these great, amazing things come into your brain and you become superpowered um, if you do it right. And that's not it. Meditation really is about the practice of losing attachment because we're all busy people. We all have these, you know, the freakiest place to be for anybody is alone between their own two ears. So That's true. a scary place for all of us. So it's true. true. And so, and we're alone in that place, right? Mm-hmm. Only we know what goes on in there mm-hmm. um, to complete truth. And so while you're sitting there, you have all this stuff coming at you, all these thoughts. And instead of trying to say, oh, I can't meditate because I have all these thoughts, the notion should be you should recognize the thought, give it reverence, let it go. Let it go. And, and it'll keep coming back. But over time, mm-hmm. what happens is you begin to build this capability this ability, this practice of losing attachment to things. Mm -hmm. And so I had to lose attachment to a lot of things I thought I was Mm -hmm. before I got hurt. Mm -hmm. And so the meditative practice was, you know, I'm not going to be that person anymore. I'm not going to have, you know, that, you know, I had this sort of, you know, I was 184 pounds and 8% body fat. And I was all about working out, looking good, document all this stuff. And you know what? That doesn't matter anymore. Number one, it's not realistic. But number two, it's just not what it's yeah. It's not what it's all about. Right. It's not important. Mm-mm. And and so this whole practice of losing attachment is really an important skill to build, mm-hmm. and allows you to live in the world in a among all the cacophony and incivility and noise and bad things going on. Allows you to live in the world with a better sense of what is called Maya. Right. It's all illusion. And it's all bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's not where the journey is. The journey is inside. You know, Sat Chidananda. I exist. I exist eternally. And I exist in bliss. Mm-hmm. And and if we can find that inside, then you can move through this world and all this Maya in a lot oh, better way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I find when people say, well, how did you get where you are? I will tell people I never had a goal in my whole life. Mm-hmm. I'm not a goal person. So I never really wanted to be here. Um, When I was early in my life and working in the auto factory at Ford Motor Company or working in the ER at at St. John Hospital, I never wanted to be work for the man. Um, and here I am, the man. Mm-hmm. And and so this whole, you know, sort of. I was just of, thinking about when you were in church making the deal. Yeah. It might have been this, but it might have been this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And, and so okay. I, I had no, I've never had, I, I tell people, I've never had goals. It's been a random walk. And it's been a random walk where you're open to learning, open to learning more, losing attachment to old things. Yeah and reinventing the journey every step of the way. And I find that more joyful than being disappointed by not achieving a goal that probably wasn't realistic anyway. Right. I heard someone say um, just this morning um, that it's finding the balance between making things happen and letting things happen. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah. There are certain things. I mean, it's this, uh, this, it's this, this idea of trying to assign some level of understanding around what it is that actually matters to make you try. You can't control everything. No. Mm-mm. You never will be able to. Just the way you react to things, right? Yeah. 
I mean, that's probably all we can control. Yep. Well, the, not only not not only is it not only is it about if, when you react to something, you have given it a level of attachment and importance. Good point. That's good true. point. Right. That says it's a priority. Mm-hmm. And is it? Right. Right. There are a lot of important things to deal with right now in this world. You know, the civility of the how we treat one another, income inequality, gun control, and the climate. I mean, yesterday we had a 72-degree day here yeah. in, in uh-huh. Manhattan. That's bad. I don't Under anybody's book, that's a bad thing. What are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so Mari and I, when, you know, we, you know, we're, we have a, a private family foundation, when we exercise our... We focus on those things that matter versus all the things that people could ask us for. And we tell people we have priorities and they're the climate. And, you know, we're going to go after gun control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, and, and I'm a gun owner. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, nobody should have a bump stock or a weapon that allows them to kill dozens of people with one pull of the trigger. So true. And I've got a granddaughter. I, I want her to come home every day from school. And I don't want her to go to school worrying about whether or not. She's going to get hurt. Right. Right. So back to mindfulness and how you brought it to Aetna. Mm -hmm. And what was the reaction? This is back in 2007. Mm -hmm. I'm not even CEO yet, but I'm president of the company. And I'm, you know, now three years into my journey of, you know, really engaged in mindfulness and in a practice every day. And it's really noticeable to me about how I approach my work, how I relate to other people, how they relate to me. I don't know if you know Sharon Salzberg. Yes. So Sharon, Sharon comes love to our her. house on a regular basis. Oh, and we lucky. sit with Sharon doing loving kindness meditation. Yeah. Lucky. Which is one of the most amazing things, isn't it? Yes. 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 Um, and you know what? My, my dry cleaner is my neutral guy. <laughs> He's such a great guy. He's like 80 years old. And he wears a beret. And Can you describe what the loving kindness is? Sure. Yeah. Um, so loving kindness meditation is the practice of wishing people, different kinds of people, different groups of things and people actually, to be safe, happy, healthy, and to live with ease. Mm-hmm. And you should start with yourself, although that's hard um, for some people. But it's a mantra that says, you know, let me be safe, let me be happy, let me be healthy, let me live with ease. Mm-hmm. And you do that for a while. And then you move on to somebody who's a benefactor, mm-hmm. somebody who's important in your life, and you give them that attention. And and then you can move on to somebody who's neutral. Mm-hmm. And then you move on to somebody who's negative to you mm-hmm. um, and who's difficult for you to deal with. Um, and then you move on to everyone. And it's a great practice. And, you know, there's this guy at the dry cleaner who <laughs> he's, I, he's neutral. my neutral guy. <laughs> and I put him in my meditation and, you know, it, we, I always say hello to him, and he says hello to me, and we transact, and I move on. And one day I walked in, I go, he goes, where you been? <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well.